to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back in to the Lions of Liberty podcast here on Independence Day Eve. That's right, July 4th. Independence Day is tomorrow, the day when we celebrate being free from the clutches of the evil King George of England. Man, thank God we got rid of that guy, right? This is the day we celebrate our freedom. Our independence. But how free are we, really? You know, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here on the big holiday, but you know, in many ways we aren't all that free. We live in a country where the government is openly spying on its own citizens, on basically every form of digital communication we have available. You know, in many ways, the federal government and local police are turning into what many rightly call a police state which we've discussed on this show before. Check out episode 13 with John Whitehead for more on the police state. We live in an increasingly fascistic economy where you need government permission to just do just about anything from teach to be a doctor, which greatly restricts our freedom of choice and the services available to anybody. You know, that's, that's the root cause of why we have a student debt crisis, why we have such problems with the cost of health care, all things we've talked about on this show. But at the same time, it's all relative. It's not all bad. In many ways, we are still very free in the United States. For one, we have freedom of speech. That is pretty much intact. You know, and we have all these technologies on top of that to communicate with each other, not just here in the U.S., but with people all over the world. And at the very least, we do have that history, that revolutionary spirit that is still a part of our culture today, even though we've certainly drifted far away from that spirit, that concept of natural rights, that we all have the right to our life, our liberty, our property. But while we still have this freedom of speech, it's vital that we use it to promote a more free society. At least that's how I plan to use it. You can use it for whatever you want. That's what's great about freedom. You can use it to talk about your pod collection if you want. I don't really care, but I do hope you're using it for something positive. Now, and there are many ways one can promote freedom. One can be active. You know, you, you can do what I'm doing here. You can start a website and a podcast and try to get your ideas out there. You can write a book, something I might do someday. You can start a YouTube channel, something we haven't done yet but may just be in the works if you stay tuned. Or you can just be active out there on social media, getting into great conversations with people. Of course, we're active on social media. You know I gotta get my plugs in here, so go check us out at Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty over on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google Plus too. We're all over the place. We just want you to join the conversation and keep this thing going. And there are other ways you can promote freedom. You can assemble in public. You can protest a certain policy. That is still our right. You can even practice civil disobedience and openly violate an unjust law to bring attention to a certain injustice. Of course, this particular path may also have some detrimental consequences, but the point is there are many, many ways in which you can try to bring attention to injustices in the world and get people thinking about things differently. 
And my guest today has pretty much done all of them. He is a libertarian activist and the host of Adam vs. the Man, which has taken the form of a radio show, a TV show, and a podcast over the years. And I've personally been a big fan of his YouTube videos, and he is now a published author as well, having recently released his book, Freedom, which you can download for free at adamversetheman.com. Adam Kokesh, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mark. Well, Adam, thanks for joining me on the show this week. And as I said in my intro there, I've been a big fan of yours for some time, particularly your YouTube videos, which I really want to commend you on. You know, I think you get into some really great conversations with people, whether it's a police officer, a TSA agent, a CPAC attendee, or just, you know, a man on the street. And you're (laughs) really able to draw out contradictions in their lines of thinking and really get some interesting dialogue going that, you know, you don't often see out there. So I really commend you for that. And that's how I first became familiar with your work. Thanks. Well, let me just say about those videos, because they, sure. they, I, I have carved out in that sense kind of a unique niche for myself as the libertarian man on the street. And you're really right to point it out that what I'm able to do by engaging just average people at, I mean, political events are nice because they're juicy targets. You can ask people, you know, I mean, my standard approach is, hey, why don't you just tell me your name, where you're from and why you're here today. And it's the reasoning that people don't really have figured out that makes it so easy to expose that cognitive dissonance, those contradictions. But it's not the going out man on the street stuff that's hard. That's easy. Lots of people are doing stuff like that. The hard part is having all the answers. And it's the the process that I know you want to talk about that for me, it took me at least a decade. I, I don't pretend like I have all the answers. But, you know, as libertarians, what sets us apart, I think a lot of us who are driven to this message by our own quest for knowledge and understanding is that we ask why. We always ask why, and when we ask why of government, why is the world like this, why is society organized like this, there are never any satisfactory answers that come from government. And when you've got that figured out, and when you have that kind of, I mean, I, I think what, what makes me unique, what I, what I really have a passion for, what I try to share with people, it's not my YouTube videos, it's not my, pod, I mean, it's not the book, the, the book really is part of it, but it's the, you know, passion for having an answer that you can be confident in, as opposed to, well, my dad's a Republican or a Democrat, so I'm going to be a Republican or a Democrat, you know, or just going by some arbitrary acceptance of reality. Well, that's how it's always been, so that's how it's always going to be. And I know you share this mentality, and I know everybody in your audience does to a certain degree, and it's so cool to talk to people who already get this, but, you know, I really want to talk about the book today as well, because the book is the, the easy, you know, I wrote it to be the ultimate outreach and conversion tool. And I think for people that have that, who want, you know, that set of answers, then uh, this is really the most effective way to share that and give that to other people. And if you want that, if you want what I have, read the book. And, you know, I want to say study it and learn it and and master it. And and it it really is a a very accessible book. It's 100 pages. It's a three-hour audio book. It's available for free. And and people are getting it right now from our pre-release. That was almost a month ago. The official release is coming up. Um, July 4th, kicking off with a 24-hour marathon uh, money bomb. I guess when you release this, you know, we'll be, uh, we might be in the swing of it, but we're starting on at 9 a.m. on Thursday, July 3rd, going for 24 hours. And uh, I hope people, you know, take advantage of this book as an opportunity, not just to uh, deepen their own understanding and have that confidence 
in the philosophy of nonviolence, the philosophy of freedom, the message of liberty, but also have a very effective way of communicating that, like I have uh, developed for myself. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned, you know, when you were talking there a minute ago, you know, how about so many people kind of have that, you know, well, I'm a Republican, and that's, I'm just going to say what Republicans say, and that's the mindset, and because that it was my mindset at one point in life, probably 10, 15 years ago, because I was raised in a household where my parents were Republicans, and, you know, that's what I heard them talk about, and that's what seemed like the right thing to do, so for a long time, I did find myself just saying, oh, yeah, Republicans, those are the right guys, that's, that's mm-hmm. what's right, it, it only when I started thinking a little bit deeper, I actually came across some columns by this Ron Paul guy you might have heard of, and he started to kind of talk about things in a, in a totally different way than I was seeing anywhere else. And that's what really started to get the ball rolling and started to get my mind working a little bit differently. But, you know, another thing you mentioned was, you know, that the asking why, you know, that's what we have to do. Why is something like this? Why is our system like this? And I actually did a show with my dad two weeks ago for Father's Day. And, you know, one thing he told me when I was a kid, I was always asking why. You know, I was never satisfied with an answer with the uh, because we said so answer. I always needed to know why. So I think some of us are just kind of ingrained with that from the beginning. I like to think we're all ingrained with it in some way as humans. Yeah, no, no. no. Let me go a step further. Yeah. That, that is so important. As long as you mention it, the role of a parent in that situation I think it's part of human nature. We all ask why. If anything, there's one of the quintessential aspects of our humanity that we ask why, that we seek understanding and knowledge, whereas a, you know, an, a lesser animal you know, simply goes by instinct and goes around you know, from moment to moment. The human being is the, you know, the, the brain explosion that evolution gave us, you know, puts in, into practice, is asking why. And if anything it's beaten out of us. It's beaten out of us by parents who say, oh, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, don't ask why. Oh, I'm, I don't have time to explain it, so I'm going to give you some bullshit answer. And, you know, disrespect for the youth and all that. And it's like, no, 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 government beats it out of people too. You know, I'd like to think it's the natural state of a child's mind to be assimilating information, asking why. And, you know, we, we have to revive that. And I, I think that's, I, I don't know if we're reviving that or if we're just evolving and getting more of that, but one way or another, Part of the paradigm shift, you know, that I talk about in the book, part of the paradigm shift that humanity is experiencing right now is to at least have a, a reawakening of that or, or a newfound respect for that, for that kind of uh, just open inquisition and, and seeking of understanding rather than arbitrary acceptance of the world. Sure, because, I mean, none of us are born with full knowledge, with full truth. We can only find it by being inquisitive. And, you know, when you when you pop out of the womb and you don't know what's going on, you're naturally going to be literally crawling on the floor, <laughs> searching for answers, trying mm-hmm. to figure things mm-hmm. out. It's only when people or institutions in our society start saying, stop asking, just do it. You know, that's and at some point in our lives, that seems to happen to so many of us. I know it happened to me at some point, because at some point I was just that kind of straightforward Republican guy. But thankfully, something snapped me out of it. And, you know, now I have this podcast and we're talking about all this crazy stuff. But um, so can you describe your own journey a little bit to us? You know, over 10 years ago, you were in Iraq, kind of in the middle of an aggressive, yeah. an aggressive war. Ten years ago, uh, this exactly, I would have been in Iraq today. Wow. I was there uh, February, September 2004 in Fallujah. It was a really interesting time to be there. Wow. And here, ten years later, you write this book, Freedom, in which you call war the greatest crime against freedom. So you've obviously come a very far, you know, long way philosophically since then. So how did you go from being kind of an active participant in an aggressive war to becoming one of the most vocal anti-war advocates out there? 
Yeah, that's dude, that's a great question. I'm I'm really glad you asked it that way. But I'm going to start with plugging my book, obviously. No, and and I, well, let me just say, well, before I get into answering that question, with an even more shameless plug for the book, it's available for free. You can get it as an audio book. You can get it in every digital format possible. We have dozens of people working right now to translate it. It's not Americentric. It's really about the modern phenomenon of statism as a global phenomenon. It is written for a global audience. Um, and, and I could, I could brag about all the specific dynamics of the book, but I wanted to say that just to, to let people know that they can rip this, they can take pieces of it, they can do whatever they want with it, and I don't care. It's totally open source. I'm not trying to sell anything but the message itself, because this is what I care about, is waking people up. I think that the greatest value I can provide to people is by sharing this message as effectively as possible for free. The slogan for the book is download it for free. And there are, uh, it, it's broken down into short sub-chapters. And one of the short subchapters is called soldiering. You mentioned the chapter on war as the greatest crime against freedom, and that's kind of the big picture stuff. But soldiering was a, a very personal subchapter for me to write because that section really represents, uh, you know, a measure of how far I've come since then. But it's not as simple as oh, he went to war, realized it was bad, came home. Because I was a libertarian in high school, and it was because, oh, I'm not going to be a lame Democrat or a, a boring Republican. You know, what, what are my options? Oh, I can be a libertarian. Leave me alone. Yeah, and I was a punk kid. I said, that sounds great. You know, I didn't understand what it meant. I didn't understand the philosophy. And this is something I'm very, very passionate about because the message has been so corrupted since it was really codified and recognized in the 70s by Rothbard and, you know, the intellectuals around him. But you know, you could blame it on the Koch brothers, you could blame it on the media, you could blame it on just the way that a lot of activists have decided, well, we've got this beautiful message of freedom and universal nonviolence and a stateless society. Well, let's compromise that. Let's advocate for a little bit violence so that we can be just like everybody else and ease our way into the system. And it's like, no, that doesn't win anybody over and that doesn't change anybody's lives. And, you know, it's really falling short of what this message is worthy of in our activism and what it is capable of. And the reason I say this is because I was a libertarian who didn't understand what it meant in high school and in college, and I volunteered to go to Iraq. I volunteered, and it wasn't to invade. I was actually against the invasion. I wasn't that naive about the immediate policy, but I believed that we were cleaning up our mess, that we were going to be doing the right thing by the Iraqi people, that the occupation was a good thing. You could say I was anti-invasion, pro-occupation even. And, and I was really disappointed when I saw Saddam Hussein come out of the spider hole because I was like, bam, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the guy that wins the lottery <laughs> in Iraq and finds Saddam. How history might have been different if, if you were the yeah, one that right. found Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I never would have found this path. But I actually got busted down from sergeant to corporal when I volunteered to go back to Iraq because I got caught with the pistol that I brought back as a souvenir the first time. It wasn't a war trophy or anything like that. I actually bought it from a cop. It had a message from Saddam to some one of his generals on it, and little gold-plated medallions on the pistol grips. But I was just disgruntled enough when I got out to really start questioning things. I mean, if that hadn't happened, I might not have gone down this path. And I got to D.C. in uh, 2007 to get a master's degree at George Washington University in political management and basically dropped out to become a full-time anti-war activist with Iraq veterans against the war. And when I was in these conversations, and, and it was a, it wasn't like it was probably the most conservative of the you know true anti-war organizations, except for the ones that were really uh, you know conservative in their identity, because we had a lot of veterans. Uh, well, we were all veterans, 
but it was still very left-leaning in general. And I would be in these debates with guys who were young and passionate like me, and I wanted the airtight answers. I didn't want to be coming down to opinion or conjecture. Well, this is nice, or that's good, or I'll, you know, cause, and if you're arguing, this is, this is what, again, to get to the, the heart of this, minarchism is a poisonous cancer on libertarianism. It is, it is so destructive to say, well, you know, freedom is this moral philosophy, and you own yourself and the non-aggression principle, and then say, but since we haven't figured out how to do the military or courts, or justice, or public safety nonviolently, we're just going to use the government for that. And you're saying that, you know, we only want government for the things that we haven't figured out how to do nonviolently yet, to which any big government advocate will say, yeah, me too. We haven't figured out how to do healthcare with the free market, duh, you know, and they'll throw out those same platitudes. But if you argue from first principles, if you argue with ruthless logic and reason, you will only come to the conclusion of pure libertarianism, of a stateless society, of voluntarism. And the reason this is so important is if you don't convert someone to that, if you don't go to that, if you don't go to the bottom of the rabbit hole and really embrace freedom for what it is, if you stop short of that and say, well, yeah, freedom is this great moral thing, but I'm going to be immoral in these situations or advocate for immorality on these issues, you might end up like me. You might end up torturing somebody in Iraq because you trusted the government, because you thought that somehow having politicians decide who guns should be pointed at is appropriate. You might be coming back with PTSD and dealing with the, the regret and everything. And I, just to bring this home, it, it's that section on soldiering in Chapter 3 of the book that really explains what it is and how pathetic and sad it is for young men, poor men, dying in rich men's wars that you are a lackey of violence, you are a paid killer, you are a sucker if you are a soldier. And it, it, it's easy to fall into that if you don't understand the philosophy, if you don't understand that having a military actually makes us less safe. That's explained in the book as well. If you don't understand that everything that we think we are achieving through the violence and coercion of government can't be achieved better voluntarily, cooperatively, and peacefully through the free market. And, and if you don't get that, you know, it, 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 it means so much less. I mean, it's almost insignificant. You might as well just convince a Democrat or Republican to vote one way once and then go back to their crooked ways. But no, man, if you want to be a libertarian, if you really need to embrace, if you, if you understand this, and, and I know a lot of your listeners are, are thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm partway there. And I have a lot of people in my audience that are still in various parts of that journey, but a lot of them know, you know, a lot of them already know. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I'm not an ANCAP or yet. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just sort of a mainstream libertarian for now, but I, I'm, I know I'm going to have to examine this and, you know what? Give it up. Give it up. Give it up. You're going to have so much more fun when you join us at the bottom of the rabbit hole. You're able to stand on the solid ground of first principles and philosophy and advocate for the true message and your life gets so much easier. And, and if I just make one more thing for the book, there's a section there that's really unique about this, about true personal freedom mental freedom, emotional freedom, work freedom, happiness causes freedom. It's a, it's a really cool chapter that I, I think represents uh, a, a unique contribution of mine to the intellectual body of thought, as well as uh, chapter 10 about the future of freedom, localization, and the Internet effect, stuff that people have never talked about before. And yet I think I've succeeded in combining all of this into uh, a concise philosophical treatise that anybody can pick it up. And it's really the most efficient way from someone to go from zero to I get it. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing I really liked about your book is kind of the tone you take throughout it. Because, yeah, you're talking about a lot of terrible things, a lot of terrible things you see the government doing, a lot of things that you see them inflicting violence upon people abroad, here at home. And yet your overall kind of tone is very positive. You know, you're you're emphasizing the positive direction humanity has been going in. And you know, some people might say it's kind of just esoteric stuff. But I think it's great that you have that your own sort of personal vision in there, along with this description of how you see government acting. And so I really I really like how that kind of attitude shines through throughout the book. No, thank you so much for noticing that. And, and there's something deeper to that that made that possible. Because as you notice from talking to me or listening to me talk or even doing man on the street interviews or what, what have you, especially when I'm ranting on my podcast, this book is better than me. This book is it's already bigger than me, but it's way better than me. You know, what I was able to do with the help of, of so many contributors to this book, I mean intellectually and I mean as uh, assistant authors, like we had uh, uh, 300 people that were invited to read it in the, uh, you know, once we had the first draft complete and helped me hammer it down. But there are a couple other interesting features in the style that uh, I think are behind your observation there that I want to point out exactly how they came together. One of my major influences has been Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication, the concept of, of a way of relating to other people. I mean, it, it's so much uh, philosophy of, of human relations that, that he's able to bring to life in communication practices. And one of the things is being non-judgmental. And a lot of libertarians fall into that trap of judging others. And, and one of the ways that I've escaped that is not just through nonviolent communication, but also in my long-term view of human history. You know, I don't think people who advocate for democracy today are evil because they're advocating an immoral philosophy. If they don't understand it or don't get it, you know, there are things that I'm sure I'm doing that in 100 years will be seen as, as just, just as ridiculous. But, uh, you know, humanity marches on. We move forward. And in the book, it's, it was very important for me to, to really separate it from all other, you know, libertarian manifestos, if you will, to not be a Merocentric, for one thing, but also in the language to be non-judgmental, to be very direct, to have no exaggerations, no opinions, no conjectures. Every sentence in this book is irrefutable. It is something that you can share with someone else and stand behind with confidence. And it wasn't easy to write it that way. It took a lot of thought. It took a lot of editing. It took a lot of, you know, oh, wait, no, you can't use that word. No, oh, you can't say that there. In that sense, it's an extremely clean book. It is, you know, sterile of those kinds of bad ideas and, you know, libertarian quirks or whatever that that turn a lot of people off or or put you on shaky ground. Again, you know, every word from this book comes straight from the bottom of the rabbit hole. Yeah, I was wondering, where's all my Adam cursing and talking about weed and stuff like that? That wasn't anywhere in this book. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, the book is better than me, man. The book doesn't (laughs) smoke weed. The book doesn't get arrested. The book doesn't embarrass himself with podcasts live, you know, (laughs) every week. Uh, The the book really is, uh, you know, and and by the way, it came to me in a vision when I was in jail uh, as a a complete concept. And, you know, I I, I started working on it while I was in jail, and, and I'm very grateful for my time in solitary confinement, if only for provoking this. Let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, for I'm sure a lot of people listening already do know, but around this time last year, July 4th last year, you did that, I guess, famous, infamous, depending on how you want to look at it, YouTube <laughs> video um, of you loading a shotgun in D.C.'s Freedom Plaza, which is an illegal act there. Um, you know, having a gun, gun at all in, in public there is illegal. And so, so what actually was your thought process behind doing it? I know you had originally planned a march, and you, you went back on those plans. So what was actually your thought going into that? And, you know, what was your main goal? And then, you know, 
were you expecting what happened to you after that? With the, I guess the physical backlash against you that wound you up in jail for a few months and eventually solitary confinement. Yeah, I, I don't have any regrets. I want to make that really clear. I don't uh, regret anything that I did. But I will quote my favorite statist, Donald Rumsfeld, who, as Secretary of Defense, in regards to defense of his execution of the invasion of Iraq and troops going in with less than ideal body armor and without vehicle armor and things like that, he said, you don't go to war with the army you wish you had, you go to war with the army you have. And, you know, I, I kind of apply that to my activism. You know, you can't wait for the perfect idea, but I knew that I had a powerful idea with this armed march on Washington. Uh, I wasn't confident in my own organizational skills to pull it off because I had been just arrested, uh, you know, a month before it in, at a protest in Philadelphia where I was uh, actually a couple of cops, park police officers, tried to tackle me from behind and then charge me with assault. And it was only because I went to jail and refused to cooperate every step of the way and played hardball that I was released within a week. And it was really an incredible experience. But I knew at that point it was kind of a reality check. Like, Adam, you know, you, you don't have the organization place to do this. You don't have the manpower and the, uh, you know, the security and, and the procedure. And it's not like, you know, I've been to open carry marches. It's, a, you know, it's not a big deal. I, I've, I've had arm, I've done them. I've, I've been in them. I've had, escort, you know, after my felony conviction, uh, you know, I've been, I've had armed escorts at armed, uh, you know, big open carry marches in Texas when I drove cross country, uh, you know, because now I'm also banned in D.C. It is illegal for me to step foot in the district of criminals right now, or I go back to jail for 20 months. But um, so I, I left uh, the west, uh, the East Coast for the West Coast, and it was a, a good move for sure. Anyway, I would give myself for my acting skills in that video a B minus. In terms of my foresight and planning, I would also give myself a, a B minus. But uh, my critique here is not that you know I ended up going to jail because I was ready for that. I was prepared hypothetically to go to jail up to five years, but I naively did not expect that my home would be raided by more men than they sent after bin Laden. Just by the way, the second time they sent more men after me than bin Laden. The second time, but the first time was when I said I was going to smoke a joint in front of the White House. Well, to be fair, bin Laden never did smoke a joint in front of the White House, and he never had a gun in Freedom yeah. Plaza. So, I mean, come on. Yeah, Priorities. yeah. I'm hitting a little too close to home for the powers that be here in the United States. But no, he, remember, bin Laden only got one helicopter. We had two helicopters circling over my house during the raid. They threw a flashbang at my dog right in front of me, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad they did actually, because if they hadn't thrown the flashbang grenade, and there was another, they came in with another dog, like like an assault dog, not a drug sniffing dog. They came in with a SWAT team that had like an assault dog uh, w with them right behind them. It was it was insane. But they threw the flashbang grenade at my dog, and he's a hundred pound pit dang mix. So I mean, he he's the kind of dog that would get shot, you know, as soon as he looks at a cop funny in that situation. But because this flashbang grenade literally went off right under his ass, he ran upstairs to his bed and was okay. But I had green laser sights pointed at my chest and was roughed up, and all my housemates were sat down for uh, five hours while they ransacked my home, busted in my face, I mean, tore the place inside out. And while I was in jail, uh, I had an employee who sabotaged my business and stole all my money. And if it wasn't for my Bitcoin, by the way, I would have been in real trouble. I would have been flat broke when I got out. But uh, I had some friends, uh, Jeffrey Phillips, my dad, uh, my girlfriend at the time, Carrie Wedler, who has a great YouTube channel as well. 
Um, she, you know, they, they, they helped me out and, and I came out of jail and landed on my feet after four months, two months in solitary confinement. But, you know, I was in combat for seven months. Going to jail wasn't the hard part. It was the stress of the legal situation and all the mess and, and the stuff that was going on on the outside. But, you know, I, in a way, it, and, and I should say that there is a chance uh, I might go back to jail in September from some lingering charges from that. I'm hoping that uh, I'll get a suspended sentence, but you never know. But uh, just to, again, I got to bring it back to the book because even telling a story like this, man, the only thing that I care about now is getting people to read the book. The book is out. It really doesn't matter. If I go to jail, you know, heck, it'll just be some more good publicity. You know, Adam, I'm a, I'm a, something I'm not shy about at all on the show. I'm a big pro wrestling fan. So I stumbled upon your interview, uh, a month or two ago, I think, with Roddy Piper. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that was a blast. <laughs> that was a blast. It was a blast to listen to. And, you know, but something I noticed in that interview, and this is, you know, this is just kind of some ideas I'm having. So you seem to hit a wall, and I think we've all hit this wall when trying to sort of explain libertarianism or what have you with people. When it comes to the point where, you know, he's agreeing with you on everything. He's, he's with you on individual rights. He's with you on how the government's doing this, how the drug war's bad, you know, every step of the way. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, where you hit mm-hmm. the wall is when you, you go from that to advocating no government at all. You know, and that's when the kind of brain explosion occurs and, and when people really start to freak out, you know, and that's, that's the same kind of methods I've taken many times over the years with people is going to that no government thing. And I, I think you're right when you're talking about principles where you need to be principled and, and the, the minarchist argument is absolutely wrong because they're just arbitrarily saying, you know, we can exert violence over a certain area as long as we only keep it to these, like you said, these two or three things to organize it with, which I is... I mean, it's, it's intellectually pathetic and weak is what it is to say, well, nonviolence, freedom, non-aggression principles, great, uh, except for this stuff. Right. I don't know why, just because we haven't figured it out yet. It's It's... It sounds so lazy. But let me run this by you for a second, though. Let, let's just envision kind of a truly free society for a moment here, where people, you know, have largely accepted individual rights, non-aggression principle. People are not trying to form these states that violate people's rights and that kind of thing. Even in that mm-hmm. society, I mean, the way I'm, I'm seeing it, people are still going to sort of congregate. You know, cities will still exist. Um, people will still come together and form organizations yeah. possibly to do things like police, like uh, courts Absolutely. and that sort of thing. And I know you wouldn't have a problem with that because what you're emphasizing all throughout your book and throughout everything you talk about is, you know, voluntary associations and that sort right, of thing. Right, right, right. But I think where no, we get I mean, you, caught- can, you can have all that. It's just that the shift in the foundation is going to be the arbitrary authority of government right. to the specific legitimate property rights authority of individuals. But my point is when you know if like say picture that organization that still is government. It's not what government is today. You know, it's not no, the, the no, tyrannical. No, now see, see now you're playing the word game. No, government is you got to like you, you could have something else and then call it government, but it, it's like if if you had like like say say we invented the car, right? And so everybody's like, hey, that's a car. Okay, cool. And then someone invents the bus. And you say, hey, check it out. This is a bus. And then you get rid of all of the cars, and you start calling the bus a car. You know, okay, fine. You want to call that government. That's cool. But that's not what we're talking about in today's world where this is what government is, and this is what government refers to. And I, I think it's better to make it clear than trying to play this game because you're, 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 you're going into like a, you're trying to twist logic and play a, a semantic game you know, in order to appease people and say, well, we'll have government, but it'll be voluntary. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, you can call it that if you want, but you have to really delineate that 
And I'd rather say, no, this is a stateless society. These organizations happen in lots of fluid ways rather than saying it's going to look like government. Although I do say in the book, and this is a very, very important point for people to understand when they're, you know, experiencing trepidation about the transition period. You know, we can't just, uh, you know, get rid of government. And I agree. This is why I advocate for localization. This is laid out in the book. But that when you start, when you get rid of uh, national governments, then down to state government, you know, then county, whatever, until you get to a local enough point that you can uh, actually dissolve it and, you know, go into a, a private property-based system. And when you do that, like at the county level, like let's say in the United States we go through this, and then at the county level we say, okay, well, we're now going to transition all law enforcement to private organizations. So first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to take the county police and they're going to have their business model. And the city police are going to be there and they're going to have their business model. They are now private companies. And they are going to be funded by subscription for people in the area or they're going to be funded by donation or what have you. But immediately you allow them to compete and adapt. But at the beginning, I think a lot of people out of fear or out of, you know, you know, just out of going, well, let's be safe, let's be sure. A lot of people are going to step up and donate and say, you know what, this might not be the most efficient thing, but we'll let, let's keep going with, with this system that is only sort of working and, and slowly work to make it better. But the thing is right now when we're locked into the status model, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. You can start with the same mechanisms. You can start with the same organizations and structures and even courts if you, if it's necessary in some places. But the thing is, once you get rid of the government part, it is immediately uh, um, uh, accountable to the consumer, to the market, to peaceful people, and can immediately start adapting to meet people's needs. And the most important thing we can say as libertarians about that scenario when people ask, well, who's going to do this? What's going to happen in this situation? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a central planner. You know, you want me to you want me to predict, you know, how many widgets are going to be made in 2050 in a free society? I can't tell you. I just know that nonviolence is superior to violence, and here's why. Well, sure, it's it's the who will pick the cotton thing. You know, it's like, well, I don't really care. Yes. I want to abolish slavery because it's wrong to yes. put someone in chains. That's just wrong. Yes. However, everything else works out. I don't know, but we can do it, so it will happen. But you know, I I think it's kind of the flip way. I don't think it's if you remove government, things will change. I think it's the other way around. I think it's if you change the way people think about their interactions with each other, with each other, if you kind of imbue a sort of vision of individual rights that which people don't have right now then that's when the organizations are all going to change. And maybe it won't, whether we call it government yeah. or not, you know, that's when people are going to start to form voluntary well, associations and not try to force everybody into their particular system. So I think that it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but I think the chicken or the egg, whichever your view is, the philosophy kind of has to come first. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, yes. No, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I really need to respond to that because yeah. that, a, a lot of people uh, as libertarians, I, and I, I hate to say that that's lazy. Again, it sounds kind of like that to me. Because I agree with you on your premise. Don't get me wrong. I totally agree with you on your premise. The paradigm has to change first. And actually, I talk about this in the book. You know, this is why I wrote the book. You have to change the paradigm. You have to give people, you know, you have to give people thinking differently. But a lot of people, I mean, people are creatures of pragmatism. Most libertarians today are self-selected based on their intellectual curiosity and based on their desire to have those underlying rules and to think philosophically. Most human beings are creatures of pragmatism. And they need that. And a lot of libertarians say, well, we're just going to you know, advocate for issues or for the philosophy. You know, we're not going to talk about transition. And a lot of people go, well, then how do we get from here to there? Oh, you don't have a plan? Well, screw you. Then I'm going to stay right here. And I'm not, I'm not willing to accept that as an advocate for freedom. And that's why I took the time for myself 
to figure out how do we get from A to B and make sure that it was part of this book. And it's going to be actually, there's going to be a whole series of books in this format that come out of it, you know, 100 pages, unobjectionable, very easy to read, free audiobooks, free everything online. And one of them is, is going to get into this, uh, you know, a lot more. One of them is going to be my presidential campaign platform for 2020 called American Freedom on how we dissolved the United States federal government in four years. If you don't give people that, uh, you, you know, they're, they're not going to latch on to this. We, we're, ne- we're never going to be able to expand into the next demographic circles as a movement if we don't give people a tangible action plan. And I think I've come up with one that is going to have that appeal. And I would go a step further and say that the progress to a voluntary society is inevitable as a force of nature. It's just a matter of how. And if you believe that, then the process of localization is pretty much inevitable, too, as you see central governments become unsustainable. So it's just a matter of how we do localization. Let's do it deliberately. Let's do it in a peaceful, orderly manner, as opposed to hoping that government spares us and its violent death throes as it desperately clings to power, as it collapses and fails. Because as you point out, you're right, localism, building voluntary associations is so important. That's another chapter or another topic in the book is, you know, how you render the state obsolete and less relevant. But at some point, you know, you've got to have people come together and say, let's get rid of the momentum of the bureaucracy. You know, let's, let's turn the ship around. Let's, uh, you know, instead of concentrating power up, let's push it down. And I think actually the democratic process, as corrupt and disgusting as it may be, is going to be the mechanism by which this consensus is established. We see all over the world there's a global secessionist movement happening. It's in the United States. It's in Europe. It's in Africa. It's in China. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. There are people going, gee, why do we have to be in this big country? Why do we have to be in this big collective? No, we want to be autonomous. And they're able to do that through the electoral system. Similarly, I think after the paradigm shift, I think there is going to be uh, a, a easy way of doing this peacefully and I, I have yet to hear a better strategy yeah I, I mean i think you're right the, the movement is certainly towards decentralization because the fact is when you have these giant coercive systems in which people aren't able to freely make their own decisions they're not going to be sustainable long term it's just the way it is i mean look at the soviet union it collapsed for a reason and maybe that's the most extreme example we have or one of the most extreme but the principle is generally the same when you're trying to force populations together force people to act in certain ways force people to exist in certain systems that they may not actually wish to live into it's just not going to work out in the long run at the same time you know when we see these secessionist movements we have to hope it's not just you know the minarchy thing we have to hope it's not just well we want to do a smaller version of tyranny in our own little area yeah <laughs> Well, it is. A lot of it is. No, and, and, and Mark, you know, that's not that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's still a step in the right direction. If anything, localization is really cool because it has that broader appeal. You know, you don't have to convert someone. You really don't. You don't have to convert someone to the philosophy to get them to agree that the United States would be better off without the federal government, that they'd be better off with more local autonomy. For someone, you don't have to convince them, hey, you're free, you should not be governed by force. People should not be threatening you with violence to control you. You don't even have to convince them of that to get them to agree that if they feel they need to be governed, if they feel they are somehow less than human, that they should be a subject of another human being, you know, in some political system, you can still convince them, well, that they'd be better off being governed locally. 
Yeah, and again, I think that's something you're really doing a good job of in your book is emphasizing kind of everyone's humanity and how, you know, that's something we all need to think about at every level of this is, you know, not taking away the humanity of individuals and mm-hmm. instead allowing mm-hmm. that humanity to flourish, which, so I really do enjoy uh, your message. I really enjoyed reading your book. I read it last night, so I can attest that it is a very easy read. It's easy to get through and, you know, it's not it's not a downer. It's not, you know, there's, there's a lot of down topics because there are a lot of bad things in the world, but you do come about it in a very positive way with which a very hopeful method message for the future. So uh, I really think you do a good job with that. And I'm glad you put it out there. Uh, before I let you go, Adam, I just wanted to give you the chance to kind of, obviously you've plugged the book already, but maybe give everyone <laughs> the full rundown, you know, every place they can find Adam Kokesh, what you're doing. And maybe, uh, is so you also mentioned the presidential thing. Is that, is that a definite fact you are going to run for president in 2020? I am planning to. I, I'm not, uh, you know, we haven't launched the campaign. We are hopefully hoping to launch next Independence Day, actually. For me, my act of resistance this Independence Day is releasing the book. Next year, it may be uh, initiating the presidential campaign. The first run uh, for 2020 would certainly be an ideas and, and, and awareness campaign. My goal would be to get 2 or 3% and to get the ideas on the map and plant the flag. And with the goal that by 2024 or 2028, uh, everybody would be on board and I wouldn't even have to run. And, you know, every, every, every candidate would be saying, I'm the best person for the job. People would be competing with better plans of how to do it. And I'm sure someone who's a more capable administrator or planner or whatever would, uh, would, would be a better president than myself. But in 2020, uh, I do intend to run and to run to win and to be ready to carry out this plan. So it's very exciting to, to have a, a kind of long-term vision like that for myself. But even then, I, I'd rather be the guy that wrote the book that changed the world. And, Mark, I'm I'm so glad that you uh, not only took the time to read it, but to really appreciate it. And I can tell from your observations. But I, I hope, uh, you know, not just having me on, but that you'll join me in, in making this, uh, this, this book a tool for your activism and, and really a part of what you do. Because all I care about right now is getting everyone on Earth to read this book. I really think this is the quickest way we're going to get people to the tipping point for the paradigm shift. Um, you know, and, and if you read this book, and, and for anybody in your audience, if you read it and, and you don't think it's the ultimate outreach and conversion tool, guess what? Write your own. Rewrite it. Change three words if you need to and put your name on the cover. I don't care. My name's not on the cover even. My name's buried in the back. Uh, it, it's really about the ideas, and, and I think we're all in a, a wonderful competition right now to see who can come up with the best mechanism for waking people up. And I think everybody wants to do that. I mean, everybody values their awareness. And I hope that this book, for your audience as well, is a very powerful tool for them to share that. Um, the the, the re- response to the book so far has just been phenomenal, and people get it. And it's it's kind of sad. you got to twist someone's arm to get them to read a book. Um, I'm working on a video series, like a full illustrated essay video series um, for this, and I'm really excited about getting that out, um, hopefully in the next few months. But uh, there, there are people jumping in. We have a techno remix. You know, like I said, we have translations. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very exciting time for me right now because I see this book getting out. And, you know, I, I'd like to say that it's going to be, you know, a lot of people have tried to write this book that's going to be the one that, you know, everybody in the world reads, that blah, blah, blah. And, and I don't know that it's going to do that. But I'm very confident that right now it's the best tool for growing the movement, at least into the next demographic. Something better might come along, but until then, I hope people will share this. Uh, I do a podcast Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. It's live. We take video callers by Skype. I put out a couple of YouTube videos every day at youtube.com slash Adam Kokesh. We have a great conversation with our fans going in our forums at adamversusaman.com. 
and really encourage everybody when they're done reading the book to join the community around the book. There are people who are excited about sharing it and, uh, you know, all the various ways that people are doing that. But uh, you can find all of that through AdamVersusTheMan.com. Adam Kokesh, thanks so much once again for coming on the show. I really do appreciate you taking your time to come out, and it was a great chat. My pleasure. Take care. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul. And you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday we have our longest running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. A special forward written by Ron Paul. Everything you need to know about the Federal Reserve in less than 200 pages. Available this 4th of July. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, welcome back, gang, and I really enjoyed having Adam on the show today. He's a guy I've been a fan of for some time, as I said, and you know, when I started the show, oh, 41 or so weeks ago, he was definitely on the short list of guys I wanted to have on, so I'm really glad I can make that happen. And as you can tell, Adam is an extremely passionate guy. He truly believes in the ideals he is putting forward, and whether you agree with his specific vision or not, he certainly has a vision that he presents for achieving a more free society. And like he said, it is the task of freedom lovers, of activists, to present a vision or competing visions of how a society can be achieved that just does not violate individual rights, like 
our governments certainly do in so many ways. But, you know, my one critique that I mentioned here with Adam, and it's not just a critique of Adam himself, because this kind of rhetoric is rampant throughout libertarianism, including past versions of my own rhetoric and my writing. But that's the focus specifically on government as the be all end all of evil in the world. You know, and if we look up government in the dictionary, all that it says is this. I'll look at Merriam-Webster right now. It says, the group of people who control and make decisions for a country, state, etc., a particular system for controlling a country, state, etc., the process or manner of controlling a country, state, etc. Now, of course, in our current modern countries and states where there is no respect for private property, government kind of claims its right to vast amounts of land that it has not justly acquired, you know, that method of control is wrong. But if you actually had private property owners that lived together and jointly formed organizations for specifically controlling their own territory, their own property, you know, I don't see any problem with that. And I know Adam and other people won't like to call that government, but it is government. And it's what most people think of when they think of government, you know, even in a free society with full respect for individual rights, you know, we're still going to see people form these organizations, some kind of organization to handle security, handle legal processes, etc. Now, some people might prefer to live in that classic sort of anarcho-capitalist society where there are no formal institutions, there are just defense agencies, competing courts, and that kind of thing. And I, I promote a society where people are allowed to do that. But I promote a society where people are also allowed to voluntarily form other organizations that just specifically you know, do security or courts in their area. You know, it's it's simply freedom of association. You know, the problem is when we tell people you just can't have government and to them, they think it means you can't even have that. You can't even have that organization that might not be violating rights, that might legitimately be prosecuting people for real crimes like theft, rape, murder, and that sort of thing. You know, surely what modern governments have become are exactly as Adam and others appropriately describe them. And it's certainly appropriate to point out when those governments are violating people's rights, but what we really have to ask is, you know, why are these organizations violating rights in the first place? Why do they operate in that manner? And the fact is that it's because the majority of people do support them and they do hold a bad philosophy. So it's no surprise that these organizations that spring from our society are going to violate rights when people have no conception of basic individual rights, you know? We take government away tonight and tomorrow. If you, the people have the same philosophy, you're not going to have that much better of a time. And, and that's why I try to keep the focus on philosophy here. And I'm going to keep doing it each and every week with my guests. And I hope you will continue to join me along the way. And until then, guys, the only thing I ever ask for you is to live long and live free. Oh.